welcome to the Music Works podcast. I'm Katie Beardsworth, director and founder of Polyphony Arts, and today I'm delighted to welcome Lucy Walker, head of public engagement at Britain Peers Arts, where she also hosts their podcast from the Red House. Lucy has seen a lot of changes over the last 15 years in which she has had the deeply enviable task of immersing herself in Benjamin Britten's music, a passion she tries to bring to as wide a public as possible through her work. The Maltings at Snape and the Red House are so important to the heritage of Britain and his life and work, and Lucy has a lot to say about the sense of place that she has been able to use so successfully for her work for Britain Peers Arts. Stay with us to hear some lively views on how to engage people with classical music, why people might be drawn to certain repertoires, and how to expand musical experience in the community. Spoiler alert, this may involve a surprising link between classical music, spooky settings, and food. But first, here's a message from our sponsor. Music Works is generously supported by Allianz Musical Insurance, the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Allianz offer a team of music experts who understand musicians' needs and lifestyles, especially helpful during the strange times we're in. You can get cover for all types of instruments and musical equipment with protection against accidental damage, loss, theft and more. And, unlike home insurance, there's no excess to pay on instrument or accessory claims. At the moment, Allianz have a special online offer with two months free cover. Not only that, every Allianz music policy now includes free legal assistance and support, so you can protect yourself, both as a musician and in your personal life. Find out more at alliancemusic.co.uk. Allianz, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. So now let's go over to the Music Works studio where Lucy is waiting to speak to us. Welcome, Lucy. Thank you so much for joining us. Thank you. Hi, Katie. Hi. Um, So today we're here with Lucy Walker, Head of Public Engagement at Britain Peers Arts. Um, And Lucy, please, could you tell us a bit about about what you do for Britain Peers Arts and and about yourself? Yeah, sure. Um, Well, Britain Peers Arts is an interesting organisation. It's kind of new, but it's formed of two parts that are less new. Um, so it's it merged with itself uh, on the 1st of April last year, which was an extraordinary time to do that. If you recall, it was about a week into the first lockdown, um, but it had obviously been in the planning for a long time. So it's the combination of the former Britain Peers Foundation in Aldborough and Snape Maltings Concert Hall and uh, the whole complex of Snape Maltings, including the retail side. So we're a large, complex, uh, multifaceted organisation. And I came from the Red House side of it, which was the Britain Peers Foundation side. Uh, So this is um, the organisation based at Britain's former home, Benjamin Britain's former home in the Red House in Aldborough. Um, And I've been there for, I started there in 2006, I've been there for 15 years. And the organisation has gone through loads and loads of changes from being about, I think, seven or so people when I first started there. And then it grew towards Britain's centenary in 2013. And then it grew again and then we merged so I've seen lots and lots of changes um, happening and now we're part of this Britain Peers Arts uh, organisation um, and what I have done has again has changed over the last few years I mean basically my role has been to immerse myself in Britain's music as far as I possibly can and then talk about it and just 
make it available what and public. A role. I know, I know. <laughs> it's just someone's got to do it. <laughs> um, but um, and that that started off being quite a a kind of head in a box of manuscripts research role for the first few years, and I really looked into particularly his juvenilia and which blew my mind by how much there was um, mm. that he managed to write before the age of 16 even. There's just boxes Gosh. and boxes and boxes of the stuff. Um, and that was really interesting. It was almost like a bit jigsaw puzzly, piecing together manuscripts that have become separated over time and working out, oh, that's the second half of that sonata he wrote when he was nine or whatever. And so there was a lot of that. Um, and looking into some of the unpublished works and arranging them into kind of chronological order for the Britain online thematic catalogue. Um, and then I became more, as a result of that research, I think I got really interested in telling people about it. So I started to put on more and more talks and public events and short films even, and occasionally popped up on the radio and, and really enjoyed that telling people about the stuff aspect of the, of the job. And then that kind of grew as the organisation became larger and as it was working towards the centenary, which was a huge, huge celebration of all of Britain's music. Um, and then the the expansion of the Red House site from being open not very much really it was open to the public when I started but only in a quite limited sense and now is open seven to eight months of the year there's the house there's an exhibition uh, that runs all the year there's an annual exhibition that I'm responsible for there's the library and then I got became in charge of the program of events every year so yeah there's just from from quite a sort of very academic start right through to just really just talking about it and engaging with it and making it as open and public as possible and now merged with snake waltings you know there's this sort of larger audience as well that that we can bring in and you know a much bigger team and there's all sorts of scope as well there too how wonderful how fantastic to have had that ability to really immerse yourself in in the history and in the research and then to to naturally move into um passing that on to people yeah uh, and just he talked about it's just so fascinating um <laughs> that sounds like a brilliant role um great so and i mean i was going to ask um if you could summarize for any listeners who aren't aware of of the setup at Snape and the Red House, but I think you, you did sort of do that, but what are the main things that people need to know who've never been to Oldborough and, um, you know, aren't as familiar with um, with where Britain lived and how he worked? Uh, for sure, yeah. Um, well, the the house in Oldborough, as I say, that's where Britain lived, and he lived there from 1957 until he died in 1976. Lived there with Peter Pears, who um, then lived another 10 years, so he died in 1986. So this is this gorgeous, a uh, former farmhouse, quite uh, very quirky inside, lots of lovely 60s and 70s interiors, um, huge garden, uh, and an archive, purpose-built archive for, for all Britain's hundreds and hundreds of manuscripts and all the rest of it, which you can also visit. So that's part of the visiting experience as well. Mm -hmm. um, and there's a, his beautiful library and his pianos, his composition studio, um, and so the, these exhibitions. So that's in Albert. And then five miles up the road at Snape was is the St. Maltings Concert Hall, which Britain appears established in 1967. So it was a former Maltings and it was one of the first industrial buildings to be repurposed as an arts arts centre, as a performing mm -hmm. centre, which I think is quite com it's relatively common now, these great 
fantastic brick buildings with terrific acoustics um and they were <laughs> the ideal the next purpose to do that <laughs> yeah um and so there's the concert hall there uh there's also great um shops as well so there's the sort of house of gardens there's some lovely places to eat um but what was uh, Snake Maltings also has this year-round program of artist development. There's a Britain Pierce Young Artist program. There's residencies. There's a huge community program. They were working with prisons, working with schools as well, and also a colleague at the Red House work with schools as well. So it's as well the, the sort of public side of it is the visit the Red House, come to a concert. But there's a, a huge program of engagement and activity that happens all year round. Uh, all based sort of around music, around heritage, around the visual arts as well as the as well as musical arts. So, yeah, a lot going on. Yeah, um, a lot going and on. about it's about five miles between them. You can walk. There's a sailor's path between them if you're feeling energetic. But it's um, otherwise, yeah, it's, it's a car trip or a bike trip between them. Mm fantastic thank you and you mentioned heritage um in amongst the the music and other arts what what um uh talk to me about the, the sort of heritage side of your of your role um and and how how heritage and classical music programming work together oh yeah i mean really that's been one of the really interesting um parts about working with the the britain collection not just the music um which is sort of trying to so you you tie those together so you could just view the manuscripts as heritage items or whatever but you've also the red house very much wants to tell the story of how britain lived as a person as well as as a composer um the exhibition perhaps is more about him as a composer but the house and the items that he and p has collected and lived um shared together tells this remarkable story and i think when I first started, he'd only been he'd been dead only thirty years, and Piers only twenty. So it seemed quite recent. It seemed odd almost to call it heritage because it was mm. relatively recent history. Lots of people around who still had known them both. Um, but increasingly, this becomes now it makes more sense to call it, you know, a heritage site. And we are so it, a house among other composer houses or artist houses or writer houses um where you can really tell a story through the items in the house and we're extra extraordinarily lucky that he kept pretty much everything so you've got a lot of uh, things a lot of different stories you can tell um through never, the you never call them a hoarder when it's somebody of, of sort of heritage importance no, can you because it's like some history yeah <laughs> well he as a colleague of mine has pointed out before he had the luxury of keeping a lot because he had increasingly large houses to keep all mm. the stuff in you know if he was yeah. having to move from small flat to smaller flat or you'd have to do a big <laughs> chuck out at some point you mean but... like composers do now <laughs> well it's an interesting point people mm. don't the electronic archive is not the same yeah. as you know britain's old receipts for you know in Aldborough High Street for buying his ties and socks and things or mm. his old checkbooks his old passports you know that 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 living history sort of history of a of a town history of a life history of a you can trace all kinds of, of social and cultural habits just through those sort of doc, bits of documentation yeah, um absolutely. you won't have that for composers who are around now i shouldn't think unless they're very unusual that's true yeah <laughs> absolutely yeah um and so yeah i mean it's interesting to, to try and define the difference between or perhaps the commonalities between heritage and 
and music history, they obviously, you know, overlap and interweave almost mm-hmm. inextricably in in the case of this kind of um, this kind of house, right? Like, it's yeah, it's all one and yeah. I think so, and you can then you can put on events to sort of ideally illuminate both aspects. Um, so you might use we did we did something on uh, for Halloween, which may seem a little strange, perhaps, but struck us that Britain was very interested in the supernatural and the turn of the screw and Owen Wingrave, two mm. of his operas are both ghost stories. Um, and so we kind of set the house up itself as a kind of slightly spooky environment with lighting and we all dressed in black and gave little talks on the collection and Britain's interest in the supernatural. I did a thing on turn of the screw with musical examples. So it was a kind and then the audience moved from room to room around the house and kind of experienced basically a talk about Britain's music and the items in his collection relating to that theme, but they got to actually physically experience it in the space, you know, in the home that he used to live. And it, it had a kind of, it had a quite a special atmosphere and it didn't feel, didn't feel inappropriate. You know, it felt this is the place, you know, where these ideas sort of grew from, you know, like broadly speaking. And so this is where we talk about them. So yeah. I feel that they that they work together really well in that sense. The sense of place is a big part of it. You know, you go into Britain's studio and you hear this is where he composed the War Requiem, mm. and you you know you can really kind of get into that idea. Yeah, absolutely. It's, there's nothing like being in in a space where something has happened to feel that mm. bit closer to it. Um, yeah. And yeah, absolutely. And there's something interesting in, in what you said about about that being strange, perhaps in in the uh, in the way that we um, generate interest in historic music for current people, um, because it seems to me it seems like a great idea. You know, people love a Halloween experience, and it is spooky. Turn of the Screw is genuinely one of the spookiest. Mm-hmm. Uh, things that I've ever seen of any genre anywhere um so you know it seems totally um appropriate to me but also that it it it's this sort of I sometimes think that when you're trying to tell people about something that they might not think is interesting and actually point out why it is and find a different angle or find it um you know to create interest for people perhaps who just who aren't like interested in Britain per se um that you know you to you're doing something that's very much focused on the specific place and just really really relevant so you know to put on a talk about classical music in a spooky building that has no historical relevance to that might w- wouldn't have the same effect would it so this, i don't know if i'm taking a very long time to explain a really obvious point about <laughs> heritage <laughs> but um, <laughs> but it seems like there's something i always think the the best events are the ones that take the very uniqueness about something and go right i'm going to get really get behind this you know yeah, um, no, you, you, it's absolutely right. It it has to, it has to be really the place. It has to be that yeah. that. Otherwise, it's um, and and it's not like you can't do anything creative in another space. But then you adapt it to whatever space that is. You know, you make that appropriate to that to that environment. So I think, I think you know, it's absolutely true. And we we would do something. Yeah, we did something on Midsummer Night's Dream once in the garden at Midsummer as the dark was falling, you know and it, and it that was an opera he composed there and it was very much the he wrote so many pieces about night when he first moved into the red house so again you just teasing out parts of the story using the physical spaces and then making something hopefully informative to the piece but hopefully and this is a big hope and this doesn't always happen 
bringing in people who might, as you say, might not be interested in in Britain, um, because I I think his music is you know great, and I've never had a problem with it. But but you do get that sort of sometimes people visit the house saying, oh I don't I, I don't like his music, but I'd, I'd love to see the house and like, can I play you some? You know, yeah. really, if you think you don't like it, what is it you don't? Yeah. What is it you've What is it you found the barrier to liking it? And then we try yeah. and just play something that perhaps isn't so seen as so difficult. But yeah, that's that's a creative challenge, a, a good challenge always to be at, bearing in mind. Mm, absolutely. Um, and so, um, how to engage people with classical mm. music? And uh, <laughs> let's solve it right now. <laughs> we're all, yeah, no, exactly the. Um, the, the challenge more and more now um, is, you know, with engagement, I feel is that it's, it feels to me as though historical, um, historical music and historical topics are becoming more and more challenging to modern audiences because they become less and less relevant to, um, you know, to how people are thinking and to the things that people want to be sort of seeing and absorbing. Um, so, yeah, it's a very particular challenge, I'm sure. Yeah. Um, yeah. yeah. Yeah, it's and it's it's something that I mean I I I quite there's no there's no there's no one simple answer. I think I I but I'm always quite I tend to I sort of seek out and I don't know if you spot them when you 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 read about someone who's come to classical music, say later on, and they've just something has just chimed and they've mm. sort of gone for it and there, there's something about the sound world that finally clicked, uh, or they thought classical music was all this was you know you because it's classical music is the most huge term i mean i don't really listen to mozart ever you know but that for some people that's what classical music is and that's Mm. that's the only thing you would listen to so it's i think you just never never apologize for it but always kind of trying to find ways of of just getting it finding that hook and it will get it will reach some people it won't reach everybody yeah, and obviously no one's expected to like everything, but um, no. but yeah, there's I I do think we have a problem with musical genre. I always think where you can it's very easy to say oh I don't like you know heavy metal or I don't like you know um, contemporary jazz or something. And actually, these genres have such a lot in them. And that people who say they don't like new music, for instance, I mean new music or I suppose they normally mean new classical music when they say that. But you know it could be literally anything. Yeah. Um, <laughs> Um, exactly. And it is it is challenging because different genres have different sort of there's an awful lot of assumptions and sort of preconceptions about music, aren't there? Mm-hmm. Um, I'd challenge anyone like musical theatre. I had an argument with someone on Clubhouse once about um, who said they did, just like despised all musical theatre, and I got very cross and said that you can't disguise, you can't despise an entire genre. No. <laughs> like, surely. <laughs> no, and I I'm, yeah. I had this conversation before. And I think it's someone that you both you and I both know, Hannah Fiddy from mm. Alternative Classical, who whose mission in life is to try and um work out what it is that people might might uh, might draw people into classical music and it was that she said you wouldn't go to a film and not like it and just say well i hate all film now you know it's there's this huge variety of of film genres there's this huge variety of music genres and it's yeah yeah absolutely i mean on the musical theater example if you take sort of like hamilton and then also i don't know yeah uh, i don't know cats yeah, like you just can't really compare <laughs> two no. things at all, can you? Absolutely um, not. But it is difficult. And then on the flip side, um, 
you know, you can't necessarily expect everyone to listen to everything again, but like, it, it's just this sort of, as you say, I just think there's something so special about finding that spark um, of interest. And that for me um, is where the heritage side of things I find really fascinating because it's, it's seeing beyond maybe I don't like classical music, but maybe I like historic buildings or maybe I like stories yeah. about floods or maybe I like, you know, operas for children or, you know, that kind of thing. No, it's absolutely right. And I think, yeah, and, that, and that's that's something that you can draw in a new audience because they might think, oh, there's an interesting site-specific thing happening at, at midnight or whatever in this in this mm. sort of ruined building. And, and then, oh, we'll just sneak some classical music in there just to kind of, and then, you know, suddenly they've been to a concert and that feels a bit furtive, but I think that, that you're actually just offering people alternative experiences. Yeah, absolutely. Um, as to, uh, to again, to quote someone who, we both know Tom Appleton said to me mm. recently that he thinks that all, all the future of all classical music is in cross arts, um, kind of cross kind of curricular, yeah, yeah, the, the yeah. think cross disciplinary yeah. stuff that um, that you know can appeal to people on so many different levels, yeah. um, and stuff like that is often the most the most clever and interesting anyway. So yeah, uh, <laughs> I don't know how often you talk, do you do any events during the day at the Red House or are they all at midnight? <laughs> <laughs> So those are clearly the ones that appeal to me most. Yeah, you like your you like your events in the night. Yeah. <laughs> I like I like that. Yes, I'm, a, I'm an after dark creature. Clearly. Yeah. Uh, <laughs> uh, uh, Thinks. Yes, of course. Yes, absolutely. But I'm we uh, yeah. quite often have quite often have um, uh, yeah talks. And actually, during the day of that Halloween uh, day, uh, another colleague was doing a sort of spooky sound effects workshop for kids who are on half term um so oh, they sort no. of come in and then that was really fun so yeah there's a, there's again not trying to cater to multiple audiences and then in the summer you know we sometimes have we had a lovely some lovely outdoor concerts again when we were just on the brink of getting back uh, into having indoor events um so the garden is a great place for for uh, outdoor events we had a sort of um heritage open days which mm. happened in September and their theme was edible England this year. Uh, and we had uh, terrific two young artists from our young artist program, Lottie Betstein and Harry Rylance doing a program based around food. Uh, so they were kind of food themed singing in the garden. And yeah, that worked really well. Classical music and food go so well together. I always say yes, yes. Made, <laughs> made for each other. Absolutely. Yeah. Absolutely. Sounds absolutely wonderful. Mm -hmm. um, and obviously your um, your education and engagement programme is one of the busiest and, and um, most varied, I think, that, that there is. Can you tell us more about how you, what kind of things you do for, for children and in education programmes? Um, yeah, it's, it's, it is big. I mean, it's um, when we were just uh, Red House and Britain Peace Foundation, again, I had a colleague who's very energetic in engaging, getting as many schools as possible through the doors, and especially a uh, school up in Lowestoft, where Britain is from, um, mm. and then having their, making sure that every year seven comes through the doors and, and has that experience every year. Um, but because the community programme, which uh, is now Britain Peace Arts, formerly Snake Maltings, um, works with all sorts of school groups, community groups, uh, hard to reach audiences as well, and again, um, and and runs numerous workshops across all different ages, um, and it's a mix of school workshops, singing workshops. There's the Friday afternoons project, which has been running for a number of years now, uh, which 
revolves around getting children in the classroom to sing you know it's quite simple but very very effective mm. yeah. um, and then there's the the more sort of perhaps advanced side is the Albury Young Musicians and then the Britain Peers Young Artists. So that artist development thing starts quite early and there's mm. all sorts of opportunities there as well. So it's, it's a huge range. Yeah. And how much do you think that um, heritage side of things kind of um, comes into the work that is mm-hmm. done with children? Because obviously I, I know of a lot of, obviously, you know, working in a similar field and I have a lot of you know classes for kids to learn music in schools out of school and so on and so forth i'm just wondering what the whether the the you know do they all feel like the sort of they've come from britain's birthplace and that or you know britain's um britain's home and so on yeah yeah <laughs> definitely you know that's yeah. that's a big part of it um and when well, so when they come to the red house it's usually a red house and hopefully ideally a snake visit as well so they get mm. to get to visit both sides but the um hearing about Britain's story and the fact that he's from Suffolk and that he started composing so young. Um, they're also, uh, school's very interested in his relationship with Britain, with peers as well. So that kind of story about the fact that they were together for so many decades at a time and it was illegal for them to be together, that's always quite, kind of packs a punch, I think, because mm. these sort of children who are sort of between, I don't know, 10 and upwards, say, have grown up in a world where of course that's not illegal and it seems mm. kind of extraordinary to them and because we, we had a group of um yeah we had a summer school of filmmakers young filmmakers one year I think it was about two years ago and they would, could say you could make a little mini documentary about the red house take any subject you want and they all chose the relationship and and how poignant that was and then how important it was and how difficult it was for them to be facing potentially prosecution and so so that and that story is told quite quite easily and quite naturally in the house because they shared the house because mm. it's their life and then they performed together and they were a recital partnership and you know so that yeah. intertwining of personal and professional is all over the whole story really yeah it's really wonderful stories a really mm. sort of fascinating and poignant story like you say i'm really glad to hear that the this is a really big part of what the kids are of engaging yeah, with definitely. um that's really that's really fantastic to hear yeah. um and of course you um as a guest on this podcast you host your own podcast by the red house yes this is well from the red house podcast started mm-hmm. it sort of evolved into something we hadn't quite planned in some ways because it if we did the first two episodes in january and february 2020 and then the world changed mm-hmm. uh and i was doing them all from the kitchen of my house <laughs> having done them you know in person and and the idea had been to, to sort of say well this week at the red house there's this happening and you know yeah. you might catch an artist who was performing a concert there or something and then of course none of that happened and, it, so... and you didn't change the title to from my kitchen no <laughs> <laughs> the, the spirit of the red house remained even <laughs> even though I couldn't go there. Um, yeah, so then it just became, it kind of became conversations about music. I mean, rather rather as we're doing here in this, so it's writers on music, performers, uh, so musicologists. I sometimes would chat to my colleagues, partly because mm-hmm, we, mm-hmm. we missed each other. Um, yeah. But also just about, a bit more about Britain and his story. Um, and then, you know, performers. I did a couple of sort of performers in lockdown experience you know how has it been for you and, and having those kind of conversations and then composers so but it was all done obviously remotely and then the subsequent season as well pretty much so 
yeah i have but i have enjoyed it it's been the, that question of what how did you get to classical music because that, that's generally the common theme running through everybody mm. who i've talked to has some interest or other in classical music and how did you access it what was the background to that was it did you grow up listening to it did you perform it at school or did you come to it late or did someone introduce you to it or you know as a performer what does it mean to you now and so those 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 are kind of at the heart of the conversations really each time mm. um and it's yeah it's really it's really fun it's a nice it's a nice experience good i like podcasting too yeah <laughs> it's good it is good I, we had a lot of the conversations about how how it's impacting people and and so on yeah. um how covid of course was it impacting people but yeah i yeah. love the idea of, of finding out when people how people come to classical music it's interesting isn't it you don't do you get that question in all genres or all sort of types of work? Maybe you do. I was trying to work out if you got footballers being asked how they came to football and things, but you probably do, don't you? Um, I th- yeah, I think I think you kind of have to because you're not. It's not a given, is it? I mean, I think mm. all, all people who are um, you know actors, you know, generally speaking, there's there's an it's usually an interesting route mm. through, you know, and some, it's, it's not like influential how you come teacher. To math. Or, no yeah <laughs> it's like well i had no choice <laughs> no choice about that but yeah. i suppose you then it might be what mate what what were you thinking were, you carried yeah, it on why did like... you yeah i know <laughs> so yeah it's interesting because yeah. when you were saying that i, I was thinking oh i wonder how you know i wonder how varied those responses are as to how people came to classical music i mean obviously you just listed various ways in which it mm. happens and it does it does seem to be a relatively niche interest um yeah Um, relatively I I think sometimes it a lot of the people I spoke to and I guess it's maybe not that surprising I'm speaking to people who are who are in the business in one way or another whether Mm. they're historians or writers whatever they quite frequently found it themselves in one way or another or found Mm. quite early on what it was that spoke to them at at a sort of profound level and Mm. and that may be nothing to do with with family or school or, or anything it's just just something something clicked but I mean I mean in my case it was I had, re- had quite a musical family I loved the piano from four and then I, ca- I just never thought of doing anything else really and it was just sort of music was kind of as natural to me as reading or mm. you know anything else and um it's always been there so I, I find it even quite hard to remember when how um but for other people yeah yeah, really family and and yeah yeah, just kind of didn't really want to do anything else yeah (laughs) always just did it yeah um but yeah it it is interesting isn't it to um to see how because I was I was never part of a a community of people who like classical music until I went Mm. to university really I mean obviously I did know people from learning music and things like that but I was certainly in the minority at school and amongst friends um as a teenager right. until until going to university so it's interesting isn't it how i remember how much easier that got when i went to university i was like oh look everyone likes it now <laughs> yeah. yeah exactly yeah yeah because yeah, that can that can be i'm sure a bit of a barrier that you especially when you're a teenager and you're incredibly self-conscious you don't necessarily want to you know admit it i mean i, I yeah. when i was at school actually was a big it was a state school but it had a really powerful music department and a, and a very um first I don't know I was just lucky I was just just ha- as it happened uh, and an orchestra and a very active scene so and quite a lot of us 
were all of my friends were interested in music also it sometimes got you out of games which was brilliant mm -hmm. so there was a kind of quite tight knit bunch um but i think i think it can be, i mean it's interesting I, I guess that i felt quite fortunate that i went to a state school where there was really good music and i just do find increasingly music is just disappearing yeah. from the general curriculum and you have to be quite to be, to be, generally speaking it's public school you have to be quite wealthy to afford the extra lessons and it's just it doesn't seem to be as available to everybody as it used to be yeah i, I think that's a, a really huge worry and, mm. and definitely true absolutely yeah yeah um but uh but nonetheless lots done by um by britain Prayers arts to uh to, <laughs> to at least make sure that there are children in Suffolk getting access oh, to, yes. to music, <laughs> which is brilliant. Yeah. Um, lovely. And is there anything else that you want to share with our listeners or talk to, um, talk about or plug indeed before we, uh, before we round off? <laughs> um, to plug, you know, well, I mean, obviously the From the Red House podcast is available. Yes, absolutely. Uh, do listen. Three seasons. <laughs> uh, we're just coming towards the end of season three. I think we're going to have two more. Um, and yes, yeah, so that's that's something that I've been doing. Uh, I'm actually, you're talking to me at a time where I'm just actually coming to the end of my time full time at Britain Peers. Um, but I am, so I'm leaving, leaving the organisation at the end of this month, but I am going to be freelancing and will be very active in promoting further events for Rimpers next year. Um, if perhaps I can just say a little about, we are looking next year at uh, the subject of Britain and women. Okay. Uh, and this is in, one of my roles has been to, to curate the annual exhibition. So this last year was on inspiration. So the people who inspired Britain, primarily peers. Uh, but we're looking more closely at the women that Britain worked with. Uh, and that will be an exhibition that goes up in uh, towards the end of March next year. Uh, and that's administrators and assistants, it's friends and family, it's composers, it's performers, it's artists and writers. There's just going to be the whole exhibition area just plastered with pictures of brilliant women. Fantastic. <laughs> um, and we'll be looking at their careers. So not just not just how they knew Britain, but actually their, you know, their careers in their own right. And, mm. and just the kind of breadth and range of careers and uh, lives that they had is really interesting. There's probably going to be about 60 of them total we're looking at uh, and there'll be a series of events all around that next year so that's something that I'm uh, going to be actively involved in even once I've once I've left I'm really I'm so into this subject <laughs> so um, yeah it sounds amazing <laughs> yeah, yeah. <laughs> oh well, fantastic well I can see why you're staying on for that <laughs> yeah oh well, so ex exciting times for you then so um, continuing um, with Britain Peers Arts to an extent but also ranging out into the freelance world as well <laughs> absolutely yes absolutely yeah. I think but um yeah, I mean, I've given, I've, I've been speaking about Britain for for fifteen years, <laughs> one way or another. Uh, and are you going to continue to be, have Britain as a focus in your freelance work? I think so, because and partly because that's what that's, I guess, how people know me for one thing. But also, I think there are still there's still stories to tell, and mm. certainly, I mean, this Britain and women angle hasn't really been done before. So I think, yeah, I think so. But um, I mean, I have other interests. I mean, before before I. Uh, was at Britain Peers. I did a PhD on 
Francis Poulenc. He was my oh. academic subject first, so I did work on his operas. So I've always had a 20th century opera oh, kind of interest. So, and I've I've managed to crowbar Poulenc into some of my projects over over the years. That's quite right. That too, yeah. yeah. <laughs> Poulenc was um, the Dialogue of the Carmelites was my oh. big final opera at um, at university. And wow! That was my, I know <laughs> it was ambitious, but anyone who was in it will confirm that it was you know the absolute highlight of, yeah. <laughs> of, of all university operas. So, yeah, that's that's that a heck of a choice. But... Yeah, no, it's a, it's, yeah. A, it's an extraordinary opera. It really is. It is a really yeah. really fantastic opera. Um, yeah, it's a real uh, real like life highlight for me. <laughs> Um, lovely. Well, thank you so much, Lucy. Benjamin Britten and his legacy play such a role in the musical legacy of this country and specifically in Suffolk, where he spent so much of his creative life. It's been really fascinating to explore your ideas on a sense of place in relation to Britain, the Maltings at Snape and the Red House and how you use this to bring Britain's work to a wider audience. And it is always great to talk to a fellow podcaster. <laughs> Um, you can find out more listeners about Britain Peers Arts and the From the Red House podcast at BritainPeersArts.org. And thank you so much for listening. Thank you for coming, Lucy. Pleasure. Thank you so much. Thank you for listening to this episode of the Music Works podcast. If you've enjoyed this conversation, please subscribe, check out our other great episodes and even better, leave us a review. You can also sign up to our mailing list at www.polyphonyarts.com forward slash mailing dash list for updates and news about what Polyphony Arts is up to for all you classical music folk out there. You can find more information in the show notes as well. Meanwhile, I'm Katie Beardsworth and I look forward to sharing with you the next great episode of Music Works. Music Works is generously supported by Alliance Musical Insurance the UK's number one musical instrument insurer. Alliance Music Insurance, serving the music community since 1960, proud to be the insurer of choice for over 70,000 musicians. Music Works is a Polyphony Arts production. Thank you for listening.